I want to welcome everybody to episode 115 of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. And in this episode, we are following up on the last episode, episode 114, which was a really extended episode where I went through an unburdening with podcaster and IFS coach Drew Boa. And so what we were thinking at Souls and Hearts, what Jody and Marion and I had discussed was, wouldn't it be interesting, wouldn't it be a good thing if we were to do a brief presentation and then a longer Q&A to address any questions that our listeners have that you have in this whole area of unburdening? Because it's something that is kind of unique, I think, to internal family systems it's a major part of how that particular approach operates. And we want to make sure that we're clearing up any misconceptions and so forth about that. So excited to have so many familiar faces with us tonight. This is a live episode. We're recording this on Friday, June 16th, the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and it'll be released on Monday, June 19th. And that'll be on all the major podcast players. And you can also get it at soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC, which is the landing page for this podcast. And what we're doing in Souls and Hearts more broadly, and, and specifically with this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, is that we're taking on the tough issues. We're really trying to get to the human formation needs that we Catholics have. Why? Because we want to learn how to love. We want to learn how to be in a deeper, more connected, more personal relationship with the three persons of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, our Father, and then also the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother. And so that's what this is all oriented toward. It's great when we have better human formation. It's really important that we shore up that, that natural foundation for our spiritual lives. So that's what this is all about. And I want to introduce the lead navigator for the Resilient Catholics community, my right hand in that community, Marian Moreland. I'm so glad that you can be with us here tonight, Marian. Yeah, it's good to be here, Dr. Peter. Looking forward to the topic. Yeah, yeah. And then I also want to introduce the lead navigator for the interior therapist community. This is the community of Catholic therapists who are working on their own human formation. And she is Jody Garneau. And I'm super excited that Jody was able to rearrange her schedule to be able to join us tonight. So welcome, Jody. Well, thank you, Dr. Peter, for inviting me. <laughs> and so the topic tonight, what's on the table tonight, is this whole topic of burdens. What are burdens? How do they develop? How do we address them? How can we be free from them? That's really what we're going to be getting into. And I thought we would just have the three of us a little conversation right here at the beginning, just to kind of share some experiences about burdens, to share some basic information. But the bulk of the time will be this conversation with you all, you know, with those of you that have been able to be with us tonight, where we can make sure that we're addressing the, the key questions the key concerns that you have. So when I say the word burden, Marion, I'm just really curious about like what, what happens inside? What, what's your reaction when, you know, when I even bring up this word, given your experience? 
you know, and I want to say too, Marion is an IFS level two trained therapist and coach. And so has lots of experience in working with these kinds of issues and both in her, her private practice, and then also in addressing them in the resilient Catholics community. So. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you say burden, I feel like this weight just kind of like <laughs> settling, right. You know, we, we had a little conversation about this, the, the, gospel today, which was talking about take my yoke upon me and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burdens light. And, and I'm like feeling like this isn't light, you know, when I think burden (laughs) and I think that's really the point of it is that if this is something that God's asking us to carry, to be yoked with him, it would be light. There are just these other things that happen to us and beliefs that we take on that aren't ours or aren't healthy from us. You know, we, we might take an idea. Like my first one was that I worked with was looking to unburden the belief that everything is my fault. That was just a message I took on as a child. I have been raising my parents since I was very young and took every bit of criticism that everybody directed towards them as my responsibility to somehow fix and manage. And being able to let go of that burden was huge, huge in my own life. And so it stands out even being several years down the road of how powerful that was. Yeah. What about you, Jody? Yeah, I, I mean, it is one thing I love about the language and concept of IFS. It just, it does resonate with me as a Catholic, this idea that I have burden and then the notion that I can unburden them is just phenomenal. And I agree, Marion, like, I think those are some of the mar- moments in therapy that really stick with me for my, for my own work. You know, there's been some other tender moments and compassionate moments, but the unburdenings are usually the ones that really stick. Well, thank you for that, Jody. And I also want to mention that Jody is, is also IFS level, level two trained, right? Level I, I actually am in my level two right in now. Level two Sunday, right now. I will be finished. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, Jody has enough experience yes. of a level two yes. Yes. <laughs> trained. I, she has taken more classes than any of us. <laughs> so it, you know, it's super exciting to have you both here, and that that is my experience of burdens as well. I remember a priest discussing this particular gospel passage in a, in a homily at a daily mass. And he said, you know, one way to translate the Greek is to say that instead of my yoke is easy and my burden light, that my yoke fits well. And he, he said that as a carpenter, one of the primary responsibilities of, of carpenters in Israel was to shape yokes. The yokes were individually made for the animals that that wore them or that bore them. And so one of the things that I notice about these burdens is that they're not tailored to us very well. When we take on a burden and it's not a, a sacrifice or a cross that's being given to us by our Lord, this thing doesn't fit us. And, and so that's one of the things that I think about in differentiating what is a burden and then what is suffering that our Lord is asking us to bear. Uh, instead of just spiritualizing everything and saying it all must be my cross, right? Some of these things 
we are meant to be able to release and to let go of. And that's a huge gift. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about is holding on to burdens because we're misunderstanding them as somehow being willed by God, actively willed by God. And then on the other hand, rejecting things that might be willed by God, you know, and trying to unburden something that, you know, God is asking us to bear. So there's kind of two ways that we can make mistakes with this. You know, one of the things that we do here at Souls and Hearts is that we want to take the best of human formation resources, the best of psychological resources, and ground them in a Catholic anthropology, a Catholic understanding of the human person. And so we don't want to, we don't want to leave anything out that could be useful and helpful, but we also have to be really careful to make sure that what we're taking in is conformable, that it's being customized or it's being modified so that it is consistent with what we know to be true by divine revelation through the uh, through the infallible teachings of the church. So I just want to reassure that parts that we are really working along those lines to uh, to ensure that. And when we get into this topic of unburdening and what that means, we want to be able to look at this through a Catholic lens. So I, I just thought a brief review of what a burden is. So Richard Schwartz in his book, Introduction to Internal Family Systems, second edition, describes a burden as an extreme idea or experience that is carried by parts and govern their lives. Burdens are left in or on parts from exposure to external persons or events. And really, I'm going to name some burdens that I commonly see in working with folks. And then I'm going to ask you, Marion and Jody, to, to, to jump in with other ones that you see, right? So I'll just kind of get us started with some really typical ones. Some of them are these intense emotional experiences. So shame is a really common burden, but also fear and grief and rage. And then it could also be a negative belief, you know, a belief like I'll never recover from this or a belief that says I'm worthless, I'm no good, or a belief that the world is dangerous and there's no place where I can hide. Or it could be an impulse or a desire, an impulse or a desire that is disordered in some way. I would also include body sensations, painful memories in these experiences. It's a really broad range of things that parts can be burdened with. But I just wanted to kind of open it up a little bit more and just Mary and Jody, whatever, you know, whatever you might add to that really brief description of what burdens might be. I recall like the burden of believing that I can't trust anyone and it kind of a little bit similar to yours, Mary, like it's all up to me. I often think of them as like those little vows we make in our head, you know, when we're little, like, okay, I'll never do that again, or I'll never trust that thing again. And then we carry that, even though everything might change, but that's kind of, that's the way sometimes protectors carry burdens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, sometimes burdens are behaviors. Um, you know, your, your example of working with Drew on a burden about a sexual belief that might also lead to a behavior is is a great example. And I 
I, I do have to say, I believe it took so much courage for him <laughs> to, yeah. to be as open as he was. And what a great testimony to really showing the p- power of healing. Sometimes those behaviors, one of one of the things that I worked on, which this was a little bit more see, but also had some bearing and could be more direct is alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we grow up in a home with alcoholism. Often the way we, we respond is one of two ways. I'll never, ever do that. And so we take on the burden that it's never okay to have a drink or can't beat them, join them and start right in. Um, And so Things like that can get passed on and and also abuse. People learn that this is how a person should be treated, even if it's dysfunctional, and that can get passed on from generation to generation, or even just, you know, in a single incident. So Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the idea of legacy burdens without naming it, but that we carry on from our family or sometimes our culture. Cause yeah, I had some around money. And just around, just beliefs around what I deserve. And, and those often come in these little, you know, maybe unspoken sometimes in a family and sometimes explicit messages that are passed down. And that becomes kind of your frame of thinking, if you want to look at it that way. And that, that it's a limited frame and that's the burden part. Yeah. And the other way that, that I thought of that, that sometimes it's like that expectation I'm thinking of a client that came from a relatively poor family, really struggled, but there was a a strong push that you must go to college. You must make something of yourself. And if you don't go to college, you're not of value. And, you know, it's just a belief that gets taken on. I really am enjoying this conversation. It's great to be having this. And I'd like to move it to this this question of unburdening. What does it mean to unburden? And what does that look like? There was an example of it in the last podcast episode, episode 114, where I did some unburdening with Drew. It doesn't always look like that, though. So I want to be really careful to say that's not a template for all unburdenings. But unburdenings do have some things in common. And I think we could open up and kind of talking about what what does an unburdening look like in a general sense? So I'm just curious, Jody, what yeah. what what in a general terms, what would an unburdening look like in your experience? There usually comes a point. So if it happens in therapies, as opposed to spontaneous, because we can talk about that, what happens outside of therapy, but there usually comes a point where, you know, that heart is feeling heard, witnessed, and safe. And then there's an invitation usually for it to check and see if there is anything it's carrying that it wasn't meant to carry. And it's always amazing to me that every unburdening is is similar in some ways, but so unique. Um, the different ways that people unburden, how they notice the burden, and then releasing it. Uh, and then the freedom freedom's the best word I can think of the openness, the uh, real expansiveness that happens after it's released Mm -hmm. is always very interesting. So usually the invitation is, you know, to first to notice the burden, are they willing to give it up? Some parts aren't ready. Um, But when they're willing to, they can release it in, 
whatever way possible. And remember, some of these parts are very young. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes there's been rocket ships and uh, hot air balloons and fireworks. <laughs> fireworks. Yeah. It's fun. It, uh, it's whatever suits that part to what would feel like releasing it. And I know maybe that sounds strange to someone who's never experienced it, but in the moment, it's so beautiful. Yeah, I, I love how you you brought up that is there is it carrying something that's not it and is it ready to let go is the part ready to let go, because that's that's such a key we get asked, you know, how do I know when I'm ready to unburden and the answer I always give back is when your system tells you and agrees that it's ready. Yeah, but it, it is it is giving that choice to a part to say, are you ready to do this? And have, allowing it to have agency and when it lets go, which often as children, that's something that was taken away. There was no choice. It was just this way. So um, that's another beautiful thing. And Jody mentioned spontaneous burden, unburdening. I will say that I think that is the most common. I mean, it happens in the, in the therapy or consultation room, but there are times that I, a client will come back in and, you know, say, we were working with these protectors around this exile. And I realized that this situation came up and it, it was just okay. It didn't hurt anymore. You know, I didn't feel like I had to react to it. And, and, and that's really, I think, the, the, if you will, the spiritual integration of it. Um, that's the place where the grace and mercy works without us having to, you know, step in or trying to step in and intervene. It just allows for it to happen because your system is in a place where it can trust. It can be disposed for mercy. And it's always relational. I'll just, you know, in relation to the self of the person. I remember one, I, I, my part, young part had this burden and I could tell the practitioner was getting ready to like set up the unburdening something. And my part just handed it to myself <laughs> and the self took it. And I, I remember turning to the practitioner and say, is that okay? And he, he's like, yeah, that's fine if that works. And I, and it reminded me of like, you know how when you, you're walking with your kids, I used to wonder when I'd walk with my children, how my hands and pockets ended up with stuff that I never picked up, you know, their garbage and their pine cone. And it was just like that. The self just took it. No big deal for the self, big deal for the little part. And that was that. And it was so beautiful, just simple, but beautiful. Well, and this, this, this all implies that there's an awareness in the parts that the burden is not the part. We really want to make that distinction because so many times there's yeah. confusion about that, where there's an assumption that creeps in that a part is its burden. And so there's some work that has to be done about differentiating the identity of the part uh, from the burden that the part carries. And that's something that also that often has to be brought into the system. Other parts need to understand that because I think so many other times when parts are condemning other parts, 
they're rejecting the burden. And when they do that, they're, they're not making a clear distinction between the burden and the part that carries it. So that's a lot of the preparatory work is around really these questions of relationship, like you said, Jody, but also questions of identity, like who is the part, not just who does the part believe herself to be or himself to be, but who is the part really? And how can that part share in the sense of ontological goodness being made in the image and likeness of God? How can that part share in that essential, that, that essential beauty and goodness? And so um, when parts begin to have a sense of that from being loved, and it's not just the love of God, and it's not just the love of other people, but it's also the love from your innermost self. That seems to be a really critical and important aspect to this, that parts have a sense of being loved by the self. This is that ordered self-love that St. Thomas Aquinas talks about, this, this sense of, of, of being really loved inside. And, and so I think that there's not a substitute for that. That's not something we can delegate to somebody else. We actually do have to value ourselves. We do have to see ourselves in all of our parts as, as, as good. Uh, and that's ordered and that's conformed to reality. So I just thought I'd make those couple of points. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dr. Peter, I'm glad you mentioned that. And one I want to underline is a lot of therapists I run into as well believe parts are a result of trauma. It's like, <laughs> it's like damage. This is fracturing. Right. This is not true. The parts and the parts have wisdom. They know what they were meant to be. And so that's why when you ask, when I ask that question, is there anything in or around you that you're not meant to be or carry, they know. And so they have that wisdom and it's, they're not a mistake. They're not, you know, completely broken. Mm -hmm. And once they're really able to be witnessed and loved, they can then kind of come back to what they were meant to be in the system. And that that's what makes it so freeing. The person can then have access to these parts unburdened instead of burdened and stuck. Well, and I would say they're essential to riffing off of what you were just saying, Jody, they're essential to loving with our whole heart. You know, yeah. that first great commandment to love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. And I think about that in terms of our parts, no part left out of that relational loving. And as I've gone further into this work and further into my own personal work, uh, but also further in accompanying others in their work, in various ways, I'm more and more convinced that we want to invite our parts into that experience of being loved and loving, that there are things that the parts can do that the innermost self can't do. There's ways, there's things that parts can understand because of their experience where they can make these unique contributions to being loved and to loving. And so this idea of loving with one's whole heart, it's not just about unblending, it's not just about parts not taking you over and not dominating you and, and blending you and flooding you with the intensity of their experience, but we also want them to unburden so that they can contribute more directly in this process of, of, of loving others and of loving our Lord. So, so I thought I'd throw that in there as, again, a, a goal that we're, that we're working toward in this, in this kind of work, whether that's in 
IFS informed therapy or whether it's in the RCC, the Brazilian Catholics community, that that's what we're really trying to get to is overcoming these natural level obstacles to a deep and personal and intimate relationship with our Lord, with our Lady. You know, Dr. Peter, as you were speaking about this unburdening process, I just kind of had this image, you know, of a person carrying a rock, you know, and it's like a really big boulder <laughs> rock, right? And and you're trying to talk to them and, and they're huffing and they're puffing because they're working so hard to carry the rock. They can't like really think about what's going on. It's all about carrying the rock. And then when they sit down that rock and they can sit down, then you can have conversation mm -hmm. and it's, it's easier to communicate with them. And I think it's that same way with the burdens is when we can, they can set down the burden, set down the rock, then it's so much easier for that, that love to flow within the system because no one's worried about carrying a rock. Yeah. Well, I would love to open it up to questions. Yeah, we'd love to be able to make sure that we're addressing the kinds of questions that are coming up for you as we discuss this whole critical process of unburdening. We had one question that came in from before our meeting. And this question of in unburdening what's the meaning of the mike elkin saying mike elkin is a senior ifs lead trainer saying once a firefighter strategy gets into the system it gets imitated and he also speaks of addiction to shaming could you discuss unburdening these repeated burdens so this idea of these strategies and I think this is what Mike Elkin is getting at. These strategies develop as a means to kind of cope. The burden is seen as something that either can't be gotten rid of or that has to be managed in some way. Just There's not an idea in the system that it could just be released. So it's got to be accommodated. And so an elaborate system of strategies comes in that involves multiple parts not just the part that carries the burden, but the parts that defend against or guard against the part that's carrying the burden or try to protect that part that's carrying the burden from being injured even more. So this is where parts move into extreme protective roles. And so it's not just the part that carries, for example, the grief of an unresolved loss or the shame of having been shamed but also the extreme roles that protectors take on. And that gets solidified within the system in ways that are often quite predictable, you know, that go in cycles and so forth. I think, I think that's what Mike is, Mike Elkin is getting at with this. Dr. Peter, I think there's maybe one other piece of it too, that at least, you know, I've experienced in the, in the natural realm, especially around addiction, is that it's so common that a person will get rid of one addiction and it becomes <laughs> another. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people say, um, I'm going to quit smoking and they gain 40 pounds, right? Um, there's studies out there that people that lose a lot of weight and maintain the weight loss suddenly develop this real strong affinity for alcohol. 
all those sorts of things. And I think that's also a place where the strategy gets duplicated. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I don't have that coping strategy. So let me find a different one. Right. And continue to follow through that cycle. Well, and that, that gets us to that question of wanting to get to the actual burden, not just in the symptomatic expression of the burden, right? Because you can get what Freud calls symptom substitution, right? We're just substituting some other way of expressing the distress or some other way of trying to resolve the underlying problem or manage the underlying burden. And so this is where I I think IFS shines as a depth approach to working with our issues, the one that gets at the core issues rather than staying at the level of the symptoms. And Dr. Jerry Crete, Dr. Jerry at Souls and Hearts and a number of other therapists will look at addiction as a maladaptive solution, a maladaptive attempt to solve a problem. You know, it's a way that that parts are trying to cope with something that feels overwhelming. I think I saw Madeline's hand going up there a little bit ago. If you want to unmute Madeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, Madeline. Come join us. So, Dr. Peter, for um I think I just want to check that on my understanding of this. So a part said exile. Can one part need multiple unburdenings or if you unburden the part does it, it everything's unburdened it's <laughs> sort of a one and done type of thing right. yeah yeah well i saw i saw jody reacting so i'm gonna actually <laughs> gonna cede the floor to jody on this one so <laughs> it it depends so some parts one unburdening is sufficient but other parts need to be to come back again to another layer and sometimes an unburdening doesn't stick. And we talk about this, why it might not, because, you know, the part needs to be then kind of connected to for the next while. It needs that continued relationship with the self. But yeah, sometimes it, it doesn't all happen in, at once and other times it does. So the answer is uh, not always. Well, and it's also, it's there's also variations. For example, a single exile could carry two burdens you know, for example, and be unburdened from one of those burdens, but not the other, right? Two different kinds of burdens. Or it might not be able to release 100%. Right. At the invitation, it might be willing to release 80% and there's still something it's holding on to, right? Right, right. Or multiple parts are carrying the same burden. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yep. So you might find shame distributed among multiple exiles. And so while one part might be liberated from shame, other parts are still bearing shame because they weren't part of that healing experience. So. Sounds like we're saying that each system is uniquely created. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I would say uniquely burdened, you know, like, you you know, the ways that these parts take on their burdens there's a lot of variability in that. There's some general principles about how this works, but there's also a lot of variability and a lot of a lot of the preparatory work really is important to being able to understand the story of the part, to really understand how that part 
make sense of its experience, what it experienced and how it made sense of that experience. And that brings us right back to those five primary conditions for secure attachment that we talk about from Brown, uh, from Brown and Elliot, their 2016 book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults. And in that book, they're not talking about parts, but I really like to apply those five primary conditions for secure attachment to parts in this process of unburdening. Now, this isn't so much IFS per se, it's consistent with IFS and and Dick Schwartz talks about how internal family systems is attachment theory taken inside. But that first primary condition of secure attachment is that felt sense of safety and protection. The second one is that felt sense of being seen, heard, known, and understood. The third one, that sense of being reassured, calmed, and soothed. The fourth one, a sense of being delighted in, cherished, treasured. And the fifth one, the desire that the other, the secure attachment figure, which would be the innermost self in an unburdening, is that 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 figure have your highest good in mind. And so when you see those conditions, you will start to see parts spontaneously shedding their burdens, you know, letting them go. Might I say too, Dr. Peter, that sometimes a burden comes through a single incident. Mm-hmm. And other times it's through, you know, kind of chronic misattunement, like an attachment rupture right at the beginning. And so some of those more long-term experiences may need more time with unburdening. And one thing we sometimes find is people will be working with a part and they're like, yeah, it's 13. And they'll be like, oh, now it's five. Oh, now it's mm-hmm. two. <laughs> and uh, that's why I have the nesting dolls here that I compare it to nesting dolls, right? Our brain, in order to organize the trauma, we put it kind of in one column, but may have happened at different ages and stages. And so the unburdening might have this trickle-down effect, but it might also need to happen at different stages. So that's very typical as well. Exactly. Because parts will often leap in at different points, right? So using your example of ages 2, 5, and 13, It's interesting you chose those three ages because those are primary points of separation and individuation. So if you, you know, uh, two-year-olds are all about, you know, no, no, I'm not you. I'm not my, I'm not my mommy. You know, five-year-olds, six-year-olds are starting to like individuate in a separate way. And then of course, when you get into the teenage years, the separation individuation, it's a major, major developmental a milestone and something that they need to be working on. So a part that struggles with the burden around separation and individuation may have really experiences that need to be unburdened at two and five and 13, because that was the part that was in the front and taking the brunt of the trauma or the lack of attunement, the attachment injuries, the relational wounds, whatever. And so there's there's an overarching theme and an overarching role that that part plays. But I also want to emphasize that you don't have to necessarily unburden every negative thing that ever happened, right? You don't have to do like 678 unburdenings because, you know, this is what this part went through on 678 different occasions, that these conditions are much more important that they be met. And the rest of it is um, details, right. you know. Especially if you look at the idea of the belief being part of the burden. So the belief is a conclusion the part made based on its experiences. And you don't need to actually remember. Right. A lot of people go into their head. They're like, I don't remember <laughs> this ever happening. I don't ever remember this type of distress. The part remembers, right? You know, that's 
with Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score, the, the part remembers. And so let it, let it go through the healing that, and that's why we stay with it. Yeah. You can't think your way out of burdens or trauma. Actually, Bessel says all trauma is pre-verbal and it doesn't mean it happened to you before you had words, but where it, where it really kind of gets into your system is not a verbal part of your experience. Yeah. So other questions, you know, you can see how we can go on and on, just need a little prompt, but I want to really make sure that we're addressing questions that you have. And again, feel free to submit them via the chat as well. And there is one that kind of gets brought up and we haven't touched on that we're hearing more about, and that's unattached burdens. <laughs> and I feel like that could be a whole podcast or 10, but it's probably worth kind of throwing out a little bit of conversation about that. I know um, Robert Falkner came out with a book recently on unattached burdens, and I know some people have read it and been asking questions. So maybe I'll flip that over to Dr. Peter and say, would you like to jump in on that? A little on unattached burdens? Sure. So I had the good fortune. I had the blessing of actually having Robert Falconer on my level one training. And during that training, uh, I was bringing up questions about evil. And so he said, well, why don't you come join me? And there were a few others that, that were involved in that, including uh, Dr. Peter Martin um, on that training. And he gave us his approach to unattached burdens. And so the IFS understanding of entities that are not in your system, right? So these are not parts of you and they're not your innermost self, but they somehow attach themselves to you. And so this is the only time in a, uh, a model of the psyche, a model of the human person derived from sort of secular bases where there has been a space for demons, really. Uh, this is really the, the place where IFS acknowledges spiritual realities and says, yeah, they do have a real impact on us. Now, you're not going to find this in the introduction to internal family systems. You're not going to find this internal family systems therapy, second edition. There's some hesitancy, I think, to kind of discuss these things when people are first getting introduced to IFS, because it might sound a little woo-woo or, you know, something like that. But it was actually really comforting to me. And I have seen Dick Schwartz work with unattached burdens and live demos where these realities are being recognized. And so these are burdens that are not personal burdens. You know, if you've experienced something in your childhood where, you know, you were burdened with shame or with unresolved grief or things like that, that was because of a personal experience. The legacy burdens come from a family experience and unattached burdens are these spiritual entities. And at the time that I went through the training, and I've not read Robert Falkner's book, so I'm assuming it's the same, but he identified basically four different types of unattached burdens. And one of them would be a malevolent, basically malevolent spirits or what we would think of as demons. There is some caution within IFS circles to, that's actually remarkably consistent with what exorcists say. And that is most of the time, we're not actually dealing with possession where the person's dominated by 
uh, a demon or an unattached burden. Uh, in IFS circles, there's going to be the saying that, you know, most of the time there's a, it's a part. Uh, once in a once in a while, quite infrequently, it'll be an unattached burden. But we want to really start with the assumption that it's a part until we we see otherwise. And I have I've seen this a lot. I've seen parts that have identified themselves as as demons um, because they were told that, or they were demonized, literally demonized by other parts. There were parts that came to that conclusion that they were demons because of the experience of rejection, because of their own uh, their own experience of evil uh, that was not originating within them, but was originating outside of them. But since they bore the 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 impact of that evil, they somehow incorporated that into their their own identity. Um, and so, so this process of distinguishing between what is a part and what is an unattached burden is something that's really, really important. But you're right, you can go on and on about that. But that is the, the third type of burden that we think about in internal family systems. So we have those personal burdens, the legacy burdens that Jody brought up, and then also the unattached yeah, burdens. Yeah, the only thing more amazing than an unburdening is an unattached burden. <laughs> going. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Yeah. 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 And it's important what you said, though. We don't want to be look, looking for no. demons in every system. It's rare. Um, it's really rare. Yeah. It's rare. Yeah. And yeah. At one of the other identifying things that I've heard is that when parts are almost malevolent in their response, when you want to know what the good intention is of the part and you get answers back like, well, I don't really, you know, and say all these things. I don't care about this system. I'm just here to make sure this happens or whatever. And then you start to kind of get an idea that it's like, okay, something's a little different here. So it's normally pretty extreme from, I've had limited work with that, but every other more experienced person has said it's pretty rare. Right, right. And Robert Faulkner would say that as well. And then I would also just caution folks that if you really uh, have gone through a process, and this is what the church offers us, is to eliminate uh, natural level explanations first before we start approaching this as if it's a demon. If if you are at that point, I would that would be something that you would want to take to your diocesan exorcist or something like that. I'm not a big fan of of therapists getting out of their lane and doing work with unattached burdens that would not be consistent with the way that we understand these spiritual realities within the church. So, yeah. Yes, Madeline. Dr. Peter, you mentioned that Robert Faulkner identified four types of unattached burdens, one of which is malevolent, which we might call demons. Just out mm-hmm. of curiosity, just what are the other three? And are they are they not malevolent in the same way? I'm just trying to figure out what. Yeah, yeah. He would have some that might be more kind of more neutral, more like lost spirits wandering, you know, wandering the earth. They don't have equivalents in a Catholic understanding of the spiritual world. And so... there's not going to be a one-to-one correspondence. The ones that tend to be 
the most problematic are the unattached burdens that are malevolent and more uh, and are analogous to demons as we would understand them. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions. Ah, here we go. We've got some questions coming in. So from the chat, with unburdening, would you elaborate again on following up with a part once it's been unburdened? I have a burden of anger about neglect and a protector that has blocked it physically that goes so far back. A part of me believes lifting these ancient burdens is impossible or will electrocute me. It's so physically painful. I also believe it's a legacy burden. Multiple parts are carrying the burden. It's so complex. It's hard not to feel daunted after 20 years of healing still ongoing, but that's a part I'm sure. So not giving up, hoping for the spontaneous shedding. Yeah, this is very helpful. Thank you so much for addressing this from so many angles and with some detail. Your, pa your patience is helpful to see and absorb. So following up with a part after it's been unburdened is so important because there can be this fantasy that once a part is unburdened, that's it. Bada bing, bada boom. It's all gone, you know, one and done. But because we are embodied beings, we want to establish a new neural network. We want to redo the neural networks, the, 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 the actual neurochemical synapses in the brain. There's an old saying in neurology that what fires together, wires together. And so this isn't just a new pattern of thinking or a new way of believing. It's also something that needs to be reinforced at a neurochemical level, a neurophysiological level in the brain. And so the recommendation is that you work with these parts that have been unburdened for 21 to 28 days after the unburdening to really solidify that that neural network the rewiring that's happened we're not just suppressing an old neural network by building a new neural network over the top of it we're actually staying with one neural network that is being entirely reconfigured and that's a difference between uh symptom focused approaches i think uh and depth approaches like what we're talking about in internal family systems we're actually wanting to to rewire that rather than just superimpose a symptom containment neural network on top. And so that consolidation also is really reassuring to our parts that I'm still here. I'm still here as the innermost self. I'm with you. You're accompanied. Because if parts begin to feel like they're isolated again, if they're left uh, kind of in the sense of being alone, they might start feeling abandoned, they can fall back into their old patterns. And so it takes about 21 to 28 days in terms of the experience of this of clinicians and of those that have gone through unburdenings for that to really become the default way of uh, that comes naturally, you know, that new way of being becomes more integrated, more, more consolidated. So that's what I would say about that's what I would say about that. But I I can imagine Jody Marion that you might have some things to add to that question or to that response. Well, I just want to add the practical piece and cuz I don't know if the person's asking from that perspective, but 
checking in means, you know, you will have done something again, relational in the unburdening. So going back to the part, it will have taken on a new place in your system, checking in if it's still doing okay. And this can take like one or two minutes. And I know the people in the RCC are very used to check-ins. It is a, it's a brief connect it check-in on a daily basis. And you can imagine for parts that have not had reliable attachments, that having now a self that is reliable and does what it says it will do means a lot. So it is brief, it's yeah. uh, connect it. And it's just that attunement, like I see you, you're doing great still, you know, whatever, wherever it's relocated. I love a lot of my clients, their parts will, uh, you know, go into their heart and they can just do this or they'll be beside them. They can do a physical thing that even if you're at work or with your own children, you can just kind of put your hand here and acknowledge the part. And that's just so, so important. Yeah, the other practical part, I know a lot of people are like, how do I remember to do that for 21 days, right? I, I had that problem early on. And I, I started to take to having little things like I have a little angel that was given to me. And I'll put that in my pocket, especially when I'm working with making sure that I connect. So it's something that's unusual. So when I empty my pockets, I'm going to see this and note and be reminded. I've also suggested set an alarm on your phone. We use them for everything else. Use them for this because it's important. Yeah. So that that's just the other thing. It's like, how do I remember? And our parts probably aren't going to object if we miss a day as yeah, long as yeah. really consistent in there. And yeah. we can repair and say, I'm really sorry I couldn't, I didn't make it yesterday. Everything got out of hand but I am so glad to be with you now. Reparation. Exactly. And there was this, this, this question of neglect coming up. And when, when you're dealing with neglect, in my experience, it takes a little longer because you know, you're dealing with something that was missing with abuse. For example, there at least was a relationship as distorted as it was. There was a, a recognition of 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 the other whereas in with neglect that's harder in some ways because of the alienation and the complete disconnect that can come with that so the the neural networks need to be built more um more fully i would think with that and i'm not a neurophysiologist or or neurologist but but i think there's some some additional work that has to come with that but it can happen still pretty rapidly because parts have a, a willingness to experience something new. And once parts begin to see that other parts are unburdened, and sometimes we start out with unburdening things that are not the, the heaviest stuff, the, the most serious stuff, but they see that, oh, I got an, somebody, some other part got unburdened from something that was lighter. There's this belief that it can now happen. And so Richard Schwartz has this example of the pickle jar you know, and that if you can get the first pickle out of the pickle jar, it makes it easier to get the rest of the pickles out. You know, so that first unburdening uh, helps to, to to demonstrate to parts that this can be real. And also, I was just thinking in regards to the question about like when there's multiple parts and and it's been there so long, it's almost hard to believe that it could be unburdened. That would be the part I'm turning to first is working with that part that is struggling to believe that it is possible. 
not going to jump to the unburdening and bypass because that's a legitimate concern that the part's raising. So we always want to make sure we turn to the protectors. Right. And right. all of them are okay with it before we start moving to an unburdening. Um, and it right. may just be as partial. That actually addresses this this question that just came in. What if you think you have multiple burdens? How would you know where to start even to identify them and prioritize them for unburdening is going right back to what you said, Mary, and you start with the protectors. You, What do we have permission to work with? And so this way of working with burdens with an IFS takes into account the entire system. Not every trauma approach takes into consideration what our protectors are are thinking and feeling. Sometimes they want to go right to the exiles, right? Yeah. Right to the trauma, right to the parts that are burdened. And there's this like sort of narrow focus on that. That's not considering what the impact of this is going to be more system wide. And then there can be backlash because I also, it's something uh, Marion and I were in a addictions training last week with C Sykes, who's one of the leading trainers dealing with IFS and addictions. And she said something that was actually really clarifying and comforting. And I, I see some of you asking about, you know, these really big burdens having, and I, there's parts that have this belief that your burdens are especially difficult and whatever has to happen to them is so big. And what C said was what the, what the parts really need is what they didn't get back then. And that's usually pretty simple in terms of attunement. I see you, I love you. Right. So we have sometimes this belief that I need like, you know, I need open heart surgery, you know, with, or I need a heart transplant, you know, you need something extreme. And sometimes what you need is just a hug, <laughs> you know? So I just want to, uh, you know, so that's why you would start with that part that holds the belief that my system is especially messed up or my system is really the unsolvable system. We start there. Yeah. And, and again, that, that, that sense of considering our whole system and in that what each individual part needs with that primary focus initially on safety of, and not just there being actual safety, but there being a felt sense of safety and protection and then parts feeling seen, heard, known and understood and feeling reassured. And so going to one of the questions we had here, do things like healthy sleep and eating, exercise, relaxation, and other things that don't involve specifically going inside help our parts during the interim period? Uh, they can, they can. Those can be useful adjuncts, but you won't get an unburdening unless parts have those, those critical primary conditions for secure attachment. You know, So those are, are useful and helpful things, you know, those, those external things in a sense, but we want to make sure that we are actually not attempting to somehow bypass the relational work with the parts by substituting other good things. Well, it, and, and in some cases, that's exactly what has happened to, to the parts. You can't just take a child for a walk and feed it and expect it to be a healthy child. It needs that attachment. And so, yes, the food and the exercise and those things are important pieces. But if we don't give it the attachment and the connection, those things 
there's still there's still an absence of what the actual need is. We had a great question here about a hiding part. And I have a particular affection for hiding parts. And let me just explain a little bit about what I mean by hiding part. Hiding parts are those that either hide themselves or hide other parts. And they can be really effective at this. Kind of like uh, nothing to see here, right? Nothing to see here. So this question goes like this, a question about how to unburden a hiding part, what seems like a complex and wily part, which conceals from the self the intensity of other parts experience, keeping them out of the self's conscious awareness. How can the self approach a hiding part that is hiding so well? Well, generally, a hiding part is going to be a protector. It doesn't always have to be that way. But I start with the assumption that this part is trying to help and that there are reasons for why it hides. And with hiding parts, there's an especial, there's a special need for delicacy and, and pacing and allowing that part to modulate or titrate how much connection is okay. So I'm kind of reminded of that scene in The Horse Whisperer where Robert Redford is working with a traumatized horse, really patient. And there's a lot of work around allowing that part to engage or disengage to the degree that it feels safe. And so I've worked with systems in which I thought there was a hiding part. We weren't in touch with that hiding part. But we would like leave notes for that hiding part, or we would just sort of say things that we thought the hiding part might overhear, right? You know, because parts are also really curious. They do want to be helped. They do want to be heard. They do want to be healed. But they're struggling so much with this question of safety. So when I'm working with hiding parts or when I suspect a hiding part might be around and I identify a fair number of these in the initial measures kits reports that we do when somebody applies to the RCC, we have these two hours of measures that we do. It's about 16 measures. It takes about two hours to do. And I would say that maybe 20 to 30% of the cases, we see a hiding part, a part that hides itself or hides other parts. So actually pretty common, but what always seems to be driving that behavior is a lack of a felt sense of safety and protection. So what I would be thinking about with these hiding parts is how can I help that part feel safe? How can I help that part feel protected? How can I build the trust with that part? And, and, and it's really important then to, to, to work in a way where we're not dominated by a part that has an agenda, that's chasing that part around, that's trying to get that part to reveal what the issue is and so on and so forth, but to let the part come to us, let the part come to the innermost self. That's what I would be thinking about with that. Yeah, and sometimes just putting out there the gratitude for how that part has been helping mm -hmm. and really working to help. I think sometimes hiding parts look a little bit like dissociation. There was something that just was too big to be remembered and it's there mm -hmm. um, and it's holding that for us and it you know it's a miracle and how our bodies and systems were created 
that we have these parts that can adapt and take on roles in order to help us deal with the unthinkable. So shifting that that's that dialogue from a hiding part being something we kind of have to seek out to something that maybe there just needs to be some gratitude and recognition of thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, you got me here. Gratitude mm-hmm. and a little bit of trying to understand what what's it afraid of? Because until it be- believes that we can see what it's worried about, it won't trust us to share in the burden, share mm-hmm. in that role of whatever it's doing so part of that is just getting to know it and it may be slow and and that's okay mm-hmm. and letting it know that we can handle that's right. what it wants what it might not that's be able a big to share. that that's often a big thing like i took this because yeah. you can't handle it and occasionally it, it is appropriate to apologize you know because you know it's easy for that part to say well where were you you know, if you're, if you can handle this, where were you, you know, 20 years ago? And it's like, I'm sorry, but I'm here now, you know, and just stay right with it lovingly. It makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Just to note that someone felt their little part perk up when we're talking. So good. <laughs> yeah. Well, parts are listening. We may think that they're off in their own little worlds, but parts are paying attention. And so often the goodness of this internal work that we're doing with one part is being picked up by another part. There's a, there's a sort of what I think of as sort of collateral goodness happening, you know, when there's healing going on. And so parts are learning, parts are, are following, even if we're not aware of that right away. And so to trust that the good process of working with parts is going to lead to good outcomes. And we don't even, we may not even be aware of what all those good outcomes are, you know, right away. So, yeah. So we have, we have, uh, you know, about five minutes left. If there are other questions, I want to make sure that we address, maybe there's a, something that you're kind of on the fence about bringing up. You're welcome to, to raise a hand or to let us know in the chat. Nissa. Hi. Um, you know, it seems like getting to this unburdening can take some time. And I know, Peter, you have said that sometimes just helping people unblend is really powerful and helpful. And, and I guess I'm just curious in the world of psychotherapy that we live in today in terms of like, um, I, I am a private pay clinician, so, you you know, um, so I'm not having the insurance companies breathe down my neck, but also people don't have, you know, sort of unlimited (laughs) um, funds to just come (laughs) and like sift through all of this. And I'm not even sure what my question is, but this, our systems are so nuanced and complex, it seems like, and it seems like it just can take some time to get to a place of unburdening if it if that doesn't happen in the course of therapy you know is it still helpful and useful and effective i guess is maybe my question well i i love this question because it it opens up two different things that i'm thinking about first of all in internal family systems therapy when you're actually talking about the therapy proper 
the primary therapist is the client's innermost self. And that's a real shift between the assumptions that, well, most of the time, the therapist is the therapist and the client's the client. But what IFS says is that actually the client's innermost self is the primary therapist and the therapist is like the secondary therapist. And so what we're want, wanting to do is to help foster conditions under which the client's innermost self can lead and guide their parts, their system more effectively. And so the whole purpose of the Resilient Catholics community is to provide a structure, a really structured approach to help individuals, many of whom, many of our RCC members are in therapy. And the RCC, the Resilient Catholics community, provides structure to help them on a daily basis to become more and more confident that their innermost self can lead and guide their system effectively. And so it's not just the one hour a week that you're in therapy, but it's the time that you're spending with your parts within your personal human formation plan, with your parts check-ins, with your individual parts sessions, with the, we have more than a hundred experiential exercises that, that, that I've done that Marion's contributed in the RCC as well to, to, to really foster this because I don't believe that therapy has a monopoly on this human formation work. And I would want to bring in a lot more resources than, uh, than therapy itself as powerful as therapy is that, but we want to bring out like, how can we really help people move along and how can we do that in community? How can we do that together on a, on a pilgrimage towards this better human formation together? So there's a lot more that can be done. Um, you know, outside of therapy, and we're we're capitalizing on that within the RCC. Is that is that helpful? Yeah, no, it is, and it just gets sort of my wheels turning too about uh, as a therapist, how am I keeping my focus on creating that part to self connection and encouraging that work, other than when they're just sitting in my office and like. I don't know. So that just kind of gets my creative juices flowing too, in terms of me sitting in the therapist chair with clients. So yes, that's helpful. Thank you. It was a shift in thinking as a therapist and part of why I fell in love with this model, because it really takes the burden off of me as a therapist and allows me to empower the person in front of me to do their work. It's just, it, that's what I love about it. So what I have found is that it sometimes it's a deep going inside kind of working with a part and other times it's playing parts detector for them a little bit so that they have these parts they can begin to work with. And it allows us to kind of help in that human formation from inside our room. And I'm, I'm a big fan of like spreading out appointments a little further. So people have time to do their own work. They're not just becoming dependent on going to therapy or going to right. coaching or something like that. If we were all operating off of the original psychoanalytic model of five days a week of therapy, you know, you, you, you know, we could move faster with therapy but in the RCC, for example, you're in touch with your companions on a daily basis. 
and you know you meet with your company once a week and so there's the support as you go through because you don't always need a full therapy session sometimes you just need a little boost from from people that are working in a similar way so um so we want to be able to to leverage that in support of you know the work that that someone's doing with their their therapist and then we have a number of people in the rcc that are doing this work on their own without uh without therapy although you know that can be more difficult when you're getting into these really difficult situations it can help to have another self you know another innermost yeah. self to support i was gonna say that being said some people have you know every system's different and your past is different that some people have the need for that more regular support from a therapist one-on-one and I always, you know, oh, sometimes yeah. I have clients yeah. apologize. They're like, I can't believe I'm still finding more things. And it's like, Dick Schwartz goes to therapy. So <laughs> all the lead <laughs> trainers are in therapy. So, you know, he's had, he's had 40 years to straighten it out. It's just, you know, I figure if you're still alive, you may still need therapy. So, um, but just so there's no shame with that. And also with people may have heard today about unburdening and think, oh, I've been in therapy for a year and I haven't unburdened anything. And it's like, when your system is ready, and I see the question somebody asked there about backlash, yeah, we a, a, a healthy, well-attuned IFS therapist will not push an unburdening. It will happen when the system is in agreement, and that's the beautiful mystery of it. These parts actually hold control, um, not the self. And so we just go at the pace that works, and slow is fast. That's We know that. Mm-hmm. And this just to kind of nuance the response to the question about backlash, it can be that at the time that the unburdening happened, that all the protectors were on board and nobody was being violated. No part was being, you know, overexposed or violated in any way, but there wasn't the follow-up, right. That we were talking about before. So then the backlash can come in because of a lack of follow-up. So that's why that follow-up is helpful. That's why that the 21 to 28 days, and even in, the uh, the last episode where Drew Boa and I were discussing his experience, he didn't do like all of that, all of that 21 to 28 days. He was pretty open about that, very honest about that, but it was still really helpful to him. He was still able to find ways to consolidate this. So I want to stress that this is a really approximate endeavor, right? This, there's lots of room for making mistakes in the journey, lots of room for missteps. Uh, we're not going to do this perfectly, but there's still great good that can come from, from that, uh, that approximate aspect of it. So, yeah. And often that backlash isn't, I haven't seen it be really huge. I've, I've seen it be like little acting out sort of things, but not, not anything that feels really dangerous. It's just like, wait, hit it. Hey, you're not listening to me again. <laughs> Hear me all well, Yeah. And also the protectors need to be updated because now their job changes. And and so if the therapist doesn't do a proper update of the whole system, the protectors left thinking now I'm useless. Like you just, you know, you just annihilated my job because this part's not screaming anymore. And so part of it is helping the protectors (laughs) find their new place in the system because they too have a place, right? Actually. So. Yeah, it's right. just, it's a process. And you know what? It's yeah. relational and relation. You guys, I don't need to tell you, relationships are kind of messy. And so it's just a process. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm glad we got that in there that, that uh, after the exiles are unburdened, 
their protectors can be unburdened from their extreme roles. And that part of that unburdening process is to take in qualities, to take in a kind of goodness. It could be playfulness or, you know, a new role within the system. You know, once the, uh, the, uh, the protectors are no longer forced into those extreme roles of having to protect or protect against an exile. So we negotiate that with them as well. So that's part of a formal unburdening. In the RCC, what we we don't do formal unburdenings in the RCC because that's really the realm of if you're going to do an unburdening protocol, that should really happen within therapy. But what we do see in the RCC is quite a number of spontaneous unburdenings, you know, ones that we're not particularly seeking out um, in a very focused and and, and agenda driven way, but ones that happen because the conditions are right. So. Well, I want to really thank everybody for, for being here tonight. It is such a pleasure to do these with a live audience. I want to express my, my, my heartfelt appreciation to, to you, Marion, and to you, Jody, for joining me, for, for us to be here on a Friday night together, to give your time and your talents and your, your expertise and your insights. And then I want to thank all of, all of you that came and that asked the questions and and contributed to this conversation uh, and offered an opportunity for us to be able to, to expand on these topics that are so important for those that, that'll be listening to this episode. So a lot of gratitude for you as well. And I just want to check in if there's anything else, Marion or Jody, that you'd like to say before we close. Yeah, I just think there were great questions. It just is kind of evidence of the work that each of you are doing and in, in the questions that are coming forward. So keep up the good work. Um, and any therapists yeah. who li might listen to the podcast who are interested, we will be starting new groups for September so they can reach out. That's right. The interior therapist community is all about the human formation of the Catholic therapist. And so uh, Jody is our lead navigator there. I'm glad that we are, uh, that we're going to be able to offer new foundations, experiential groups. You can check that out at soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC, or just Google the interior therapist community. And just a reminder that the Resilient Catholics community, the RCC, is accepting applications for new members throughout the month of June. So until June 30th, 2023, we will continue to accept applications from new members. We have had 55 apply already. We're looking to have a maximum of 108 in 12 companies of nine each. And so I'm really inviting you to check that out. Go to our landing page, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That's a little r, little c, little c. Or you can just Google Resilient Catholics Community to find out so much more. Marion Moreland, who we had as a guest today, and I will be doing the interviews. We will be meeting with each applicant to go over the results of their initial measures kits, where we'll describe somewhere between 9 and 15 of your parts, and how those parts may be interacting within your system. 
There's an ongoing process of discernment. Just because you apply doesn't mean that you have to join. That's a a process that takes time to unfold to see if the RCC is a good fit for you. So I invite you, if you really resonate with this conversation we had today about burdens and unburdening, if you resonate with the experiential exercises that we do in this podcast, if you resonate with the weekly reflections, if you resonate with this idea that there is a unity and a multiplicity within our psyches, if you resonate with this idea that there's an innermost self who can be a secure internal attachment figure for your parts, if you resonate with those kinds of things, those are good signs that the RCC, the Resilient Catholics community, may be what you need to continue moving forward. And so I invite you again, consider it, and you're welcome to get in touch with me if you have questions on my cell phone, 317-567-9594, during my conversation hours, which are every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, or you can email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. If you have questions about logistics or administrative questions about the RCC, you can contact our office manager, Patty Ellenberger, at admin at soulsandhearts.com, A-D-M-I-N at soulsandhearts.com. And with that, we'll close by invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. us.